0: It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete.
1: All right, what's going on? Welcome to the show. Thank you for listening. And you can hear the latest episodes at the Pete And of course, any of your favorite podcasting platforms. Uh, look into joining the Facebook group as well. It's the, called the Pete Calliner show. We solve the world's problems. It's what we do. And a special thanks to the folks who helped make the show possible, like Sarah and ba- uh, and Barry, Yuri and Karen and uh let's see here nancy i've got everybody's name on a list here for real david i appreciate it and lori and curtis thank you so much for all of your support i appreciate it uh north carolina governor roy cooper says that the state has to stay on lockdown for another two weeks but some other states including our neighbors are already starting to reopen so what's the right decision how would we even know joining me in a minute is going to be North Carolina Congressman Greg Murphy, who just happens to also be a doctor? uh one thing is certain: North Carolinians are getting restless right. Uh, speaking of which, if you have discovered that you're not getting enough rest because your mattress is trash, uh, go to my friends at MattressMan.com, MattressMan Stores. They have four locations in Asheville, Arden, and Hendersonville. They do ship nationwide, okay? So if you are listening outside of the Asheville area, they can ship to you. And uh, I encourage you, I urge you to support this uh, local business, this North Carolina business that uh, is supporting this show. So mattressmanstores.com is the website, mattressmanstores.com. They have great mattresses. I have one. Christy and I bought it long before they were ever advertisers on the show. Uh, and uh, it's a memory foam. We love it. It's uh, it's one of uh, a number of quality uh, mattresses that they've got there. Uh, they've got the whole Biltmore collection by Restonic, which is made in Fayetteville, again, North Carolina made. Um, they have inner spring mattresses, pillow top natural latex mattresses. They have adjustable bases so you can elevate your head to combat snoring. You can elevate your feet to help with circulation. Uh, And I mentioned that they ship nationwide. They have, though, for the local folks, they've got five-star white glove delivery service that is free for you, okay? And if you want an additional 20% off the mattress Go to their website, mattressmanstores.com, and when you're searching and looking and then you find the right mattress, when you're checking out, use the code RESTWELL. If you use that code RESTWELL, all one word, R-E-S-T-W-E-L-L, RESTWELL, use that code and you'll get 20% off uh, site-wide. Okay, they did a whole uh, update to their website, and so you can buy uh, anything from the inventory that they have in stock. All right? Uh, So go to MattressManStores.com and, you know, experience the difference. You'll see for yourself. MattressManStore.com. Buy local and sleep better. North Carolina's 3rd District Representative, Dr. Greg Murphy, originally from Raleigh, went to Davidson College, I guess part of the notorious Davidson Mafia I've heard so much about over the years, also UNC School of Medicine, um, and uh, set up practice in Greenville, North Carolina, had a prestigious career, including Chief of Staff at Vidant Medical Center, and was elected to the North Carolina House of Representatives in 2015 and then to Congress last year, where he beat, I think it was about 8,000 candidates that were in the primary. Um, and he serves on the Science and Technology Committee, as well as the Education and Labor Committee in the House of Representatives. Dr. Murphy, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for making time for us. I appreciate it.
2: Thank you for having me, Pete. Happy to uh, happy to be with
1: you. Sure. So uh, real quick, so Congress uh, and Raleigh, uh, the House of the General Assembly, kind of the same, kind of different? What are the what is the biggest, uh, aside from the fact that I guess you can't really spend a lot of time in Congress these days, but uh, yeah. What, yeah. what are the similarities you've noticed and big differences?
2: Yeah, I think it was helpful for me. You know, I, uh, Pete, I did not grow up wanting to be in politics. This was not on my life's radar. I always, I've always i been happy being a physician for the last 30 years. Um, it, was, it was good for me to be in the General Assembly of North Carolina to learn how, that, how a legislative body works. You know, the presentation of bills, committee work, et cetera, et cetera, debate, et cetera. And so it gave me a good uh, lattice work, if you will, to walk into Congress. There are a lot of uh, differences, type of debates different. Uh, You know, I'm one of 435 in uh, D.C., and I was one of 170 in Raleigh. And so um, it's been it's been good uh, to have an experience walking in, but also uh, presents new challenges.
1: So you have and it. This is I I, uh, spoke with your colleague Congressman Dan Bishop a couple days ago, uh, and so a lot of this is sort of going to be in that same sort of vein through a North Carolina prism here. Because as a former General Assembly member, and most recently, um, you uh, you've got a unique perspective. Also, as a doctor, a really unique uh, perspective. And by the way, for folks who have not gone to Doctor Murphy's (coughs) Facebook page, uh, he does videos, and I found them to be very helpful in kind of understanding some of the. The science and the and the uh, the medical systems uh, dealing with this virus, which I do want to ask you about, uh, but they're very good videos. I recommend people go and uh, check them out on Facebook. So first, have you seen Governor Cooper's plan to quote reopen the state and to do it in these phases? And if you have, what do you think of this plan so far?
2: Well, I think a phased approach really is what's needed. I, I supported what we did to essentially lock down the state many weeks ago. I thought it was an important step, um, urged the governor to do so and uh, agreed with doing that. Now, I do think the recovery part is a phased is something that we should do phased. I don't believe, uh, I don't agree with the approach that the governor of Georgia is taking, basically uh, open all the doors at once. I, I do think there are avenues where I would have some disagreement with the governor about what we can do now at the same time that we are Safeguarding the health uh, of our state, you know, as you mentioned, I am a physician. That's actually the lens that I'm using to look at this crisis. I, I started in mid January studying and I, and I do mean studying, um, reading every paper possible, calling and speaking to uh, experts, not only across the state, but across the nation, just trying to learn and soak up as much as I could, because I think it's helped me um, develop a, uh, a policy approach to this entire um, pandemic. And, you know, I know the governor has a difficult situation. He, he's the, you know, he's the highly uh, the most high, high office in our state. Um, but I, I I will say that I mean, I'm, I do have a difference of opinion as to things that I think we could actually start today to open up, um, you know, still abiding by all the things that have helped us social distancing, wearing masks, washing hands, sanitizing, et cetera.
1: Right. Yeah. I, I'm not exactly a fan of the governor's policies and uh, politics. Let's just say that. But uh, I, I I, tried to give him wide latitude on this because I think what what I've learned and no professional am I. But what I've learned is there doesn't seem to be a lot of people that know what to do. It, it, we're all kind of learning on the fly. And uh, it, it is. It's kind of scary to when you recognize how much is not known about charting a path forward. And so I'm trying to kind of give deference to people who I'm hoping have a lot more data (laughs) and expertise than than I do.
2: Well, this is uh, I try to use this analogy that we're building a plane while we're flying it Um, because we are truly in uncharted waters. And, you know, we can look at everybody on both sides of the political spectrum in using the retrospective scope and say, well, you should have done this, you should have done that. I don't think that's helpful. Um, I, I think for the most, uh, most cause, uh, most part rather, that we've done the right things at the right time. I'm, not, I'm trying to really, to be very honest with you, Pete, I'm trying to look at this very apolitically. I'm trying to use a scientific approach to say, well, what's reasonable? What's When is it reasonable to move forward? I think we could do that at this point in time. But again, I I think it's sad that some of the politics have already seeped into this. And, you know, you can see that at the national level uh, as well as on the uh, as well as at state level.
1: Well, yeah, I think everything is viewed through the political lens now and the and the lens of Trump. I think everything gets viewed that way. And it's unfortunate because. Uh, And that's why I think you've seen people that automatically flipped. Like at first it was, you know, Trump's not taking it seriously. And then it turned into now he's taking it, you know, too seriously. He's a tyrant. He's not a tyrant. And then they adjust their own positions based on what their political opponents are saying at any given time. And uh, that's not it doesn't make for good policy and it darn sure doesn't make for good medicine um, and science. And so, uh, yeah, so I, I look at the governor's plan right now and I'm thinking, okay, I don't like this stay-at-home order for another two weeks, but if he's got the data that says that this is what needs to happen, it needs to happen. Now, I am kind of concerned that this seems to be now, the plan could stretch somewhere into oh. July. Um, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but if is it, isn't it it necessary that the infection spreads so there gets to be a herd immunity short of a vaccination being discovered?
2: Well, Pete, to your first point, uh, you know, I think there's a, large population in our country that if the president came out with a vaccine six weeks ago and everybody in the world was cured, they'd still attack him. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the good thing is like him, don't like him. He's uh, he's a leader. He leads out in front. He's not afraid to to say what he thinks. He's the most honest president we've ever had. Um, and, uh, you know, it is what it is. Now, as far as uh, the herd immunity goes, you know, if you've, you've been kind enough to watch my uh, congressional Facebook page videos, the first ones I did, you know, like about two months ago, I talked about the curves. I talked about flattening the curves, how there was one peak of a curve that if we if we went down that road, we would have a possible loss of literally millions of lives um, and we would overwhelm our healthcare resources. We've flattened the curve appropriately so, but you have to look, you have to be very careful What does flattening the curve mean? You can only push the curve out so far. Um, You know, we talk about herd immunity. Until we have a vaccine, number one, a vaccine that works, two, another vaccine that is uh, dispensed literally worldwide, um, we're not going to be in a point where this virus is not going to infect people. Now, as we found out in the state of New York yesterday, that when they did antibody testing, close to 20% of the population of New York has already been exposed to this virus. And so it, herd immunity is, a, is an interesting concept because depending upon who you read, if 20 to 30% of the population has been infected, that's what we call herd immunity. Because if say, for example, um, you had been exposed to this virus before, didn't know it, but you had developed antibodies um, against it, which is what a vaccine does, develops antibodies against the virus. And I was infected and you came in contact with me I could not infect you anymore. I could not infect you. Therefore, um, you could not infect anybody else. Mm -hmm. So that's what herd immunity is. It basically is a firewall to the virus itself. Now, will we get to that point? Do we need to get to that point? Um, That's a very, very good point. I think we have to get to that point. Um, It's going to be a lot of pain uh, um, as we move forward.
1: Right. It's one of the things I think a lot of people early on were maybe misled to some degree, maybe in denial uh, that they believe that flattening the curve meant that if we just, you know, stayed in at home, sheltered in place, that uh, that this would eradicate the virus. And that was never part of, uh, the outlook, right? That was never one of the possibilities simply. I mean, I guess if you quarantined everybody in their own box for a month and nobody had any contact with any other human being for a month, I guess maybe that would do it, but you'd have to do it worldwide, right? Like seven and a half billion people quarantined away from each other. Um,
2: yeah, you'd have to, you're exactly right. You're exactly right.
1: Right. And so I think that people thought, well, we'll stay at home and then it'll just kind of like go away because nobody will have it anymore. But that's that, that that was never the case like you said flattening the curve was just kind of like people saw the curve and thought okay well it ends well no it doesn't it just it keeps going it's just not shown in the picture <laughs> the curve goes right, on right <laughs> for a yeah. while um, afterwards
2: and there is pete there is going to be another rise in the fall i mean point blank we 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 know that we know that from pandemics um and for the for the people if we open things up who are going to scream in the fall say see see what you caused, I'm telling him point blank right now, that's ludicrous, because we know that we we know that we saw that in, in 1918, that that virus actually went around the world three times before it was extinguished. Mm. So uh, it's going to happen.
1: So what does that you mentioned the New York City exposure study that came out? And this was, and I'm glad you did, because I actually have a, a question about that, that I wanted to ask you, the 20% of the population that has the antibodies, That's significant from a herd immunity perspective, but also on the data collection side of it, right? Like this was a much higher number than people thought uh, was in the population, right? So what does that then tell us? Because I think some people are looking at that and saying, aha, see, there's way more people that have it or have had it. And uh, so therefore, it's not as fatal as everybody said it was. So this is all a hoax.
2: Well, I, I don't agree with that. This is a very fatal. It's a very highly infectious disease. Um, it produces a response in the body, unlike the influenza, because basically, what happens as it attacks the body, it's not the virus itself that kills you. It's really what happens. It's the body's response to it, and you get the. I mean, get into the, all the deep medical stuff, but, but the, the short of it is, as the virus, as the body responds to the virus, it leaks blood cells and the, and the blood vessels leak because that's just one of the body's response. And so fluid gets into the lungs to the point where no matter how many like fluid pills or something try to get rid of fluid, it doesn't work. It just sits in the lungs. And basically you can't pump enough air in because it's like trying to pump the difference between uh, pumping air into a, uh, you know, a basketball, which fills and fills and fills versus trying to pump air into a, uh, a, uh, a hard, hard container. It's not going to go anywhere. And the pressure just goes up. And basically, that's how people's blood flow stops, etc. Hmm. And so, you know, it, it's a it, it is a very very um, virulent virus. But I do agree that remember the case fatality ratio is a ratio. There's a there's a numerator on top and there's a denominator on the bottom. So as the numbers increase at the bottom, the percentage decreases. I actually, you know, if if someone had asked me six weeks ago what I thought the prevalence was out in the community, I would have said twenty percent. And I have uh, I've said repeatedly that I think when everything is said and done, look at the case fatality ratio, it's going to be about 0.5 percent. The flu is about 0.1 percent. The main difference in all of this is that we have a vaccine for one and we don't have a vaccine for another.
1: Right. Um, So have you seen any of this, any of the reporting? I think Emory is looking at uh, the effect that the covid-19 is having on blood. And cl- specifically clotting, and that they're saying they're seeing these similarities. I think they said somewhere like 30 40% of the patients they have like severe clotting. There was a Broadway actor who lost a leg due to clotting. There was, uh, there's, and they're saying like this could ex- explain why some people get hit with strokes. Some people get hit with the fluid in the lungs because it's clots. Some people are getting hit with, um, uh, heart attacks and such. And, and so they're looking at that. Have you, are, are you, uh, have you been reading anything about the effect that it's having on the blood specifically as it relates to clotting?
2: Well, Pete, I, I, to be honest with you, I've not really read that specifically. I will tell you, you know, a, a lot of this entire disease, any disease is always individualized. Hmm. It depends upon how your body responds to this. And obviously, uh, people who have lung diseases getting the virus, it's going to react one way, heart diseases, et cetera. The number one risk factor, you know, the, the number one risk factor overall is age over 65. The number two are comorbid conditions, other diseases that people have. And really, the most important all of these, amazingly, it's not diabetes, it's not heart disease, it's it's obesity. Yeah, That's what we're finding out is the number one risk factor in addition to AIDS. So to be honest with you, it's obese older people that are most at risk.
1: Well, and also I saw some study that said there was some... Uh, There was some security built into. Smokers, uh, of all people. <laughs> like, uh, I'm, I'm kind of like now I wish I hadn't quit all those years ago. Maybe, or maybe I, I don't know, maybe I've insulated myself, inoculated myself with camel lights. Um, I don't know, but like that, I know doctors would never prescribe smoking, but yeah, just a, a lot of stuff that people are learning and everybody's learning, like I said earlier, on the fly. And, uh, and that includes political opponents, right? That includes our political opponents. They're not, they, yeah. they don't, they don't know these things either. They're making guesses too, and maybe let's not look Look at everybody with deep suspicion when they're trying to throw out uh, different ideas, whether it's, uh, I've, you know, there's stuff now about what ultraviolet uh, 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 being some sort of uh, uh, have, having some sort of an influence on the disease as well. I, I have no idea. Uh, and I think everybody's yeah. it's like kind of like battlefield medicine, right? We're all practicing Well, you guys are practicing battlefield medicine.
2: Yeah. um, You know, one thing I've read uh, that I've known about literature, Pete, over the last 30 years in medicine is you have to look skeptically at every single paper Hmm. because I I go in and I read a paper. You have to prove to me that you're right because I'm immediately going to believe you're wrong. And so you just have to look at things with a uh, a, 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 a careful eye. And uh, we'll find out, you know, the academics are going to love this for the next quarter century because they'll look back on the data that we've gleaned and say, okay, well, this, we thought this, but it really was this and and vice versa. Um, It will be a a place where dissertations are written for the next quarter century. Uh, Just a lot of body of knowledge to study.
1: So how do you determine, this is another point of contesting, uh, the uh, cause of death. When is a death due to COVID-19? And when is it due to the underlying health condition?
2: Well, when you read a death certificate, and unfortunately I filled out um, many in my day, you, you have a primary cause of death, and that's why you died. And then they have secondary two, secondary two, secondary two. Mm. So what you could have is you could have somebody that had um, a heart attack, secondary to um, sepsis, which is low blood pressure, which is secondary to um, pneumonia or, or a particular type of sepsis, which is secondary to COVID-19. So COVID-19, the virus, could cause somebody to be sick. They could get a um, a, a staphylococcal pneumonia, which could cause them to be septic, meaning their blood pressure dropped. And if their blood pressure dropped, they didn't get enough blood to their heart, and they had a heart attack and died. So the primary cause of death in that individual would be a heart attack, Mm -hmm. but it would be proximate to the cause of COVID-19.
1: Are you following any of the uh... The challenges, I'll call them, that the North Carolina press is having getting data from the Department of Health and Human Services about cause of death and uh, where the outbreaks are occurring and such, because I guess this kind of circles back to the governor's response plan. And there's some criticism that rural areas are getting treated essentially unfairly, uh, and they're being forced to comply with a a set of orders and rules that – might make more sense in Charlotte and and in Raleigh, but not necessarily, you know, in uh, in Waynesboro. Uh,
2: Pete, very concerned about that. And I've expressed those concerns to the secretary um, Health and Human Services myself, because what happens is data is um, obtained by county health departments. That data is then reported to uh, the Department of Health and Human Services in the state. And we've had an exceedingly difficult time in eastern North Carolina for our health system at Biden Health System, which is a 29 county referral area, we've had an exceedingly difficult time of getting that data back from the state. So we best know how to manage um, our, our, our part of the state. You know, I think things should be done regionally. I had a problem with when the president said, look, I'm in control because to be honest with you, the 10th amendment is very clear about that. Um, it should go back to the states because I think states, North Carolina knows better what to do than, than New York does tell in North Carolina or, or Wyoming for that matter. But I also think regions of the state, as you pointed out, know better what to do for their region than other regions. Eastern North Carolina is not the same beast as you guys over in Asheville or in Wake County, et cetera. So we need that data from the state to, from the state, uh, to get um, us on a better playing field so we better know how to take care of our patients.
1: Are the nursing home outbreaks skewing county data?
2: I don't know. No. I don't know. Again. We, we we haven't been able to get that that data from the state. It's very problematic.
1: Yeah, because I could see a situation where a county could have, you know, 30 or 40 cases, but if they're all in one nursing home and that nursing home is now essentially quarantined, that, that that's, I mean, I'm not saying they're not cases. They are cases, obviously, but the response would not be the same as, as it would if you had 30 or 40 cases, you know, just out and about in the in the county. Um, It
2: would be entirely different. And we've actually had an issue with that in the northeast section of North Carolina. There was mm -hmm. a nursing home where there were some cases. We had a lung doctor take care of one of those patients. We didn't know about the nursing home part. That lung doctor got infected. We had to cancel the lung doctor's clinic. We had to cancel the pulmonary clinic because of that. That all could have been prevented had we known about the nursing home. So we've already had a concrete example of that problem.
1: My guest is North Carolina's Third District Representative, Dr. Greg Murphy. Um, speaking of hospitals, one of the ways that hospitals prepared for the surge in COVID-19 patients was to cancel elective surgeries. So, as a doctor, what does that actually mean? Because I think people think elective surgeries; they think, "Oh, I'm just getting you know some cosmetic nose job done." What are these surgeries? Are they really elective? And like, what does that? What kind of impact does that have on not just the patients but also on the hospitals?
2: Well, Pete, it has been crippling to the hospital structure across the state um, for every hospital because, to be very honest with you, the way hospitals function, the way they make their bottom line is with elective surgeries, Um, not the emergency department people coming in because we get a disproportionate share, especially in eastern North Carolina, patients on Medicare and Medicaid or or no insurance. And Medicare and Medicaid only pay a portion of their cost. So it's it's been crippling to us to not be able to do elective surgeries. Now, let's just let's. have. Um, We can have the far example of what elective would mean, and that would be a totally cosmetic. In other words, you are not helping someone get better. You are basically improving um, their appearance, Mm -hmm. you know, a a facelift or or something else of that nature. (laughs) An elective procedure also could include um, somebody having a hip replacement. They're having terrible pain from it, and their hip is worn out, but it's not an emergency, but they do need their hip replaced. So those have been put on hold um, also. The former, you know, the plastic surgeries, those uh, those are merely um, 100% elective. Nobody's gonna die from not having a facelift. Um, somebody could get hooked on chronic pain medicine from having to take that for chronic hip pain. So we back it up for if somebody has a minimally or partially symptomatic gallbladder. Well, that's something that should be done, but that's been pushed off also. So what we're now accumulating is this massive, massive backlog of cases, quote termed elective because they're not emergent or not urgent, but people really need to have them done. And so it's crippled us. And I've urged our institution, and our institution is now starting, and I think they're doing this now starting statewide, to start doing these cases again with the appropriate testing, making sure that people um, are safe, making sure the patients are safe, making sure the healthcare workers are safe, but allowing them to uh, literally come back from what could literally bankrupt hospitals across the state.
1: Right, because that dovetails into the next question I have is why hospitals are furloughing employees. It seems counterintuitive. If it's all hands on deck, then why are these people, you know, getting their hours cut or being furloughed or in some cases you know, let go?
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's multifactorial. One is obviously the elective surgeries part, because those are things that, uh, you know, that need to have done. The other thing is certain clinics have been said, all right, look, you shut down only emergencies only which in my opinion, especially because I deal a lot with cancer patients, um, those are not emergencies, but if, if they miss an appointment, well, maybe their cancer would come back and it'll I find it out at too late a stage to be able to save their life. Um, what we're seeing also in our emergency departments is that people are not coming to the emergency department. Now, granted, probably a good 40% who show up in the emergency department uh, depending at our institution, don't need to be in an emergency right. <laughs> department. They're, they're, they're not emergencies. Yeah, But pe- people are putting off things like chest pain um, because they're either afraid uh, to go or they're being told, look, don't go to the emergency department unless it's a true emergency. And and don't quote me on this. I'm, I'm thinking it was Chicago, but please don't quote me on this, that last week, three times the number of individuals died at home than normally do. In other words, they had a heart attack. They yeah. were having uh, staggering chest pain and they they died at home rather than um, coming to the hospital seeking care getting a stent put in and surviving so it's a major problem major major problem
1: right and this and then you start getting into questions of risk assessment end of life care uh, and I, I don't think we as a society are equipped to have those kinds of conversations uh, because what you're saying is it's not a and this is you know the the law you're choosing lives. Uh, Or or money, you know, like that's the, the false dichotomy that's presented like you're either for the economy or you're for saving lives. And the as you mentioned, like this sort of this this hidden part of the equation is all of the other lives that are being lost because they're not getting the care. So it's not a lives versus money; it's a lives versus lives. It's a, just a different timeline that you're discussing. Um, yes, but I think yes, everything completely. is yeah, and everything is political, so we can't have that discussion. Uh, well, it's and uh, it's it's a it's an ethics discussion. That's a tough that's a tough conversation to have, and people don't have the training to discuss ethics like that.
2: Well, and there are a lot of people who I was on a. a, a facebook live post uh, earlier in this week that people fail to understand the difference that it's not an either or Mm. it's a it's a a a thing that occurs at the same time it is not a choice between people's lives and the economy you can do both at the same time Um, people who fail to understand that they are totally intermingled either have a political agenda which a great number do or they just don't have the knowledge base from which they need to draw to be able to understand that problem.
1: My guest is 3rd District Congressman Dr. Greg Murphy. Now, are you scrambling maybe to set up or improve your website, your business website? It can be overwhelming for any of us. I know it was for me. So let my friend Schaefer Smith at Schaefer Smith Design help you out. With logos, graphics, photos, even an online store. He can do search engine optimization, website maintenance, and security. He does this for professional services, for corporate, uh, for small business sites, entrepreneurs, whatever you need, Schaefer Smith Design. He can help make it happen. Make your site look professional and user-friendly, not just for your customers, but also for you. You know, He's going to empower you to run your website so you can adapt quickly. SchaeferSmith.com. That's SchaeferSmith.com. Now, if you're looking to buy or sell a house, I've got somebody for that as well. That's Rowena Patton, and you know Rowena Patton and her All-Star Powerhouse team. They've been advertising on uh, the Pete Callender Show for uh, almost a decade now, and uh, so many people I know have used her, uh, love her. She's she's the best, and she's just a great person, too. Her phone number is 333-4483, 333-4483, and uh, look... You may need to sell your home, but you're thinking you don't want the traffic coming through the house. Rowena has investors ready to tour your home virtually and potentially make you a cash offer, saving you the hassle and stress of buyers having to walk through your house. So start out with a video consult with Rowena Patton at 333-4483 or go to her website, mountainhomehunt.com and start packing. Um, My guest is North Carolina's third congressional representative, Dr. Greg Murphy. Let me talk a little bit with you about the economy. Uh, A couple of things. Um, I have a CBO number here uh, that they just released. And yeah, this is showing uh, the CBO forecast here, which is essentially just showing double-digit unemployment for the foreseeable future, negative GDPs. Uh, I mean, this is is Great Depression-like. Catastrophe, right?
2: Yes, yes, it is. Uh, numbers yesterday showed that there were 26 million people in the United States out of work. 20 percent, two zero percent of the workforce was unemployed. At the height of the Great Depression, that was 24.5 percent. I fear, to be very honest with you, um, I'm a surgeon. I kind of tell it like it is. I think we will surpass that percentage in the Great Depression. And what happens with that? What happens with unemployment? Unemployment causes poverty. Poverty causes despair. And uh, we saw in the Great Depression the number of suicides went up over 50%. We are seeing that now, um, that suicides are going up, domestic violence is going up. Uh, This will be crippling not only for the people's uh, physical health, it'll be crippling for their mental health. And to be very honest with you, Pete, I think it's going to take us 5 to 10 years to get out of this.
1: Hmm. Do you think we're done with uh, sort of tourist economies in cities in North Carolina? Is thats is that model effectively dead?
2: I don't think it's dead. I, I think it's on life support, to be honest with you. Um, I look at my area, I, I represent approximately about 70 plus percent of the beaches mm-hmm. of North Carolina, which is number one, we have fishing and we have tourism. And um, we, agriculture is a big part of the district also. But if you look at tourism, this people in three months time, Make their other twelve months or ever other nine months of income. Now, um, I've said and I put on one of my uh, Facebook posts. I thought that parks could be open. Why, why is that? Well, you're out in the sunshine, and I do believe sunshine and UV radiation are healthy things um, in this crisis. But you're you're you know socially spacing, you're apart from one another. You're mentally improved because you're outdoors. Um, I do think that we can safely open parks, which is different from what the uh, governor said. But um, that is tourism. That is people getting outside. You know, the other part of the equation, Pete, is we open up businesses, we open up parks. That's one thing. But then people have to go. They have to go attend them. They have to spend the money to get consumer confidence. Or they have to get consumer confidence to spend the money. And that's going to be problematic also.
1: How do you regain consumer confidence?
2: It's going to be, honestly, it's going to be time. It's going to be able to look past the um, emotion Look past the uh, rhetoric that's going around um, the virus itself to see increasingly improved numbers, to see reassurance from elected officials that, hey, everything is going to be okay. But it's also consumer confidence that when somebody looks in their bank account, they don't look and say, well, gosh, am I going to have to make a choice between rent and food this month? Am I going to have disposable income that, hey, I could go out and, and spend some money and purchase something then?
1: So, is the era of ubiquitous dine-in service? Do you think that's over? I mean, profit margins are so low in restaurants anyway. They rely on you know turning tables over a certain number of times in a certain period of time. And if we have to reduce the number of tables that are actually in the building, uh, that means it's going to cost more to operate than it would generate in revenue. So, like, I think you know, I mean, I- I'm concerned that all of these restaurants that uh, you know we've kind of been spoiled by having so many to choose from. I don't know how many of them survive into mid-May, let alone into July, if that's how long it takes.
2: Well, um, they have taken advantage of the payroll protection program. That gives them two months of, again, that's not a stimulus by any means. It is a stabilization program to try to stabilize us to get through. But I think that's a great concern. I think we lose a large number of restaurants. They, they operate on a very thin margin. And, you know, to be honest with you, I think uh, 30% occupancy is better than 0% occupancy. They do have fixed capital costs uh, that are not going to go away. But if they limit the number of uh, individuals as we slowly come back through this, I think that's an avenue. To be honest with you, I think that's one we could, we could achieve and begin very soon to again start the road back.
1: You mentioned the uh, stabilization. I've been calling it relief. Uh, I don't like. I don't like calling it stimulus either. Uh, I look at it more like disaster relief. Um, North Carolina got four billion dollars in financial relief from the federal government, and uh, it is supposed to be distributed to municipalities so they can cover some of the revenue shortfalls that they're all going to be facing and are facing. You wrote a letter to the governor expressing concerns about the method in which the money is going to be distributed. So what were your concerns with the method well, of distribution?
2: Yeah, I, I've, we've, $4 billion was sent to the state of North Carolina. I've not, not been able to get a good answer where that money is or what plan is going to be distributed. Um, if you look at our state government, the appropriating branch of uh, our government is the legislature. And in my opinion, that should be who is appropriating this money, looking at things. I just don't want this to become a political process. You know, we have certain Republican mayors, we've got certain Democratic mayors. I think politics need to be taken out of this. Um, hopefully the government, I um, mean, the governor will pursue that option. But I do think if you look at what our state constitution says, that says the appropriations to uh, the appropriations um, come from the legislative branch. So that should be given back over to the legislature and say, okay, this is where uh, this should be appropriate. So that was a concern, and I, I know it wasn't accusatory. It wasn't anything uh, in that regard, but it was just, hey, we recognize this problem. We want to be on the same page as we
1: move forward. Why not? Uh, and I don't know if you were offering solutions here, but is it like a, a per capita formula, just to say, okay, you've got X amount of you know residents in your city, so you get X amount of relief, something like that?
2: Well, um, you know, the, the way that the CARES Act was written, any city with over 500,000 people could directly petition the Federal Reserve to be given money directly. It would not have to go through the state. So, you know, Charlotte, for example, I believe is over 500,000. I believe they've already petitioned um, the Federal Reserve to get that money. Um, so I, I personally think, and again, looking at formulas, uh, if you look at it as a county by county basis, again, going back to the best locality, regional possible, Um, That population would definitely be the leading demographic to, in my opinion, to prioritize where money needs to go.
1: And it's not like this governor has any kind of a history of, you know, going around the legislative body to create a fund for distribution by himself. I mean, so there's definitely no history there, uh, to concern us. Um I'm sorry. You don't have to respond to that, Congressman. <laughs> so I'm trying to be as apolitical as possible, I understand. I'll, I'll I'll take the shot. Um so let me ask you, this is uh sort of looking to the future. Handshakes uh gone forever and good or they need to make a post COVID comeback? What do you think? Handshakes
2: uh, That's part of um our society we're communal beasts um you know in in japan they don't handshake they bow that's Mm -hmm. been their their heritage for literally probably you know at least hundreds of years if not thousands of years uh handshaking has always been a very western um way of greeting i don't think it's gone forever um i think it will make a comeback but in the short term probably best to to elbow bump Mm -hmm. um i I loved how though some people were saying well they would just do a foot (laughs) <laughs> um, football, I don't know if you've seen that. All, all I can figure is that I don't. I can't count on everybody's balance. No. A bunch of people falling down.
1: Yeah. No. So. I. Uh, I had uh, peripheral vertigo uh, last year. I would not be somebody to endorse <laughs> that particular course. Not at all. Um, do you think, though, looking again in the future here and trying to? Uh, uh, and, and I don't know, that was a couple of weeks ago talking to another one of your colleagues actually about this uh, uh, Patrick McHenry and. Uh, And he he said something I thought was pretty interesting. And when this desire to look in the future and see things and and make predictions about what stuff is going to look like, that's an optimistic view of the world. And that it comes from a place of optimism. And so uh, and it made me feel good. So I've adopted it. So uh, all right. So the so China. Do you think uh, that the, the global relationship with China, do you think that changes uh, after this? Does globalization change somehow after this?
2: Uh, undoubtedly, the relationship with China uh, changes because I, I think there are some, we have to look for silver linings and to the, to the theme of optimism, we have to look at silver linings through all this. It, is, uh, it has exposed the tremendous dependence that this nation has on the country of China. Um, you know, we can have a whole other hour long discussion about China's culpability uh, through all this. I believe they've lied to us from day one. They continue to lie to us from day one. But if you look at our supply chain, our supply chain, we are so dependent upon China. And you kind of have to ask yourself, why? Why, why have we sh- shipped all those uh, uh, industries and everything overseas? It's because of primarily wage problems and uh, regulation problems in this country. So I think there'll be a grand reckoning. Um, that would have not occurred otherwise, because of this, to bring jobs back to the United States, and decrease dependence upon who is to be honest with you, our greatest foe right now. It's China.
1: Uh, What about the World Health Organization?
2: Very disappointed in their response, because I think they um, in an effort to appease the Chinese government, um, were not uh, were were derelict in their duty of pursuing facts. Um, At this point in time, you know, again, a lot of people are going to say, what if, what if, what if And there'll be time for that. There's not time for that. At this point in time, I agree with what the president said about the World Health Organization. Um, I I was very uh, mixed um, emotions about the uh, all the celebrities the other night uh, raising money for the World Health Organization, because it's become a very political, bureaucratic organization that has not been a friend to us through this crisis.
1: I saw a stat that it had spent more money. It was a big expose news report. They had spent more money on travel than they had on, like, Ebola and AIDS and, like, some other, you know, uh, diseases all combined. Uh, and, and that's – that's it's disappointing, as you said. It's shameful, I think, uh, that, that that body would do that. Um, I think that's not what their mission is supposed to be, but uh, what do I know? Um, not at all question uh and i know i've kept you much longer but you said you had plenty of time so this is what i do to people <laughs> i'll just keep talking with them uh but I'll, I'll wrap it up here with you just a couple quick questions um first off where have you been you've got a chance to go to dc i know it's been limited because of the the, the virus and all but have you had a chance to meet anybody up there that i don't want to say idols because that's too uh, big of a term you know but people you've admired that you got to meet and um what was that like? And who was it, if you had anybody that you got to meet?
2: Yeah, I'll bring one person in particular. Uh, I, when I had been there a couple of weeks, I asked my scheduler, I said, would you please see if you could schedule a breakfast uh, to, with Dr. Carson, with Secretary Carson? Mm. And she goes, okay, what's the purpose? I said, he's a doctor, I'm a doctor. And I want to meet him. <laughs> and uh, we had a great breakfast. In fact, our wives, we all had a nice dinner a few weeks later. Uh, I come to find out he's a pool shark and he invited me my wife and I had to go over and play pool. I think we were being suckered. Um, and, uh, but, uh, you know, he's a great, a great person. Um, you know, there are actually there's some other people on the other side of the uh, aisle that I admire. I don't agree with, but I admire. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is not one of them. Uh, but Steny <laughs> Hoyer, who is what they call the majority leader, he's the number two person of that party. We, we won't agree on things, but he's a man of uh, principle. He's a man that listens Um, and I I admire him for that. Um, You know, I wish, uh, to be honest with you, I wish he were the speaker um, because I think we would be a lot more productive in our days in Washington, D.C. There are individuals on both sides of the stream that have their problems, but there are also individuals that I I think are there for the right reasons. They care about uh, uh, this wonderful nation that we've had and uh, that are, are there to work together.
1: Do your colleagues in Congress ask you about their medical conditions try to get some free checkups or advice from you like I suspect all family members of doctors do?
2: Always always. <laughs> when I went to uh, when I went to Raleigh it was really pretty funny. Um, I took a prescription pad with me, which I do all the time anyway um, and uh, the first year I think I went I burned through two prescription pads <laughs> um, you know because you look at this uh, for an individual that came from Asheville, for example, Willie He he forgot his gout medicine. He's going to be there all week and he really needs the gout medicine. Mm. So I'd I'd write a script or, you know, someone that had a urinary tract infection or somebody that needs their inhaler, um, those kind of things. And I'm happy to do it. I I feel blessed to be a physician. I feel like I'm in a position that, uh, to be honest with you, God meant for me. That's what what my job was supposed to be. Um, And so I'm always happy to do that.
1: So I guess, and that was the last question I was going to ask you. Is a question that I asked my wife. Sometimes I'll say to her, "Oh, I'm going to be interviewing uh, this uh, congressman. He's a doctor. So, do you have any questions for him?" And uh, she said, "Which job does he enjoy more?" And I said, "That's kind of a that's kind of a trap question for a for a well, congressman uh, doctor. But it sounds like you you do have an answer."
2: Well, I, I do. Um, I, I, to be honest with you, I love both of them. You know, as I said, when I look in the mirror, I still see a doctor and I'm still practicing. I'm trying to do my very best. Congress, the uh, the ethics rules make it exceedingly difficult to do that. Mm. Um, they don't want you to do that. I can't essentially earn any money doing this. Um, I can only earn as much as it takes me to pay for my malpractice, my licenses, etc. But I do it, number one, because I love it, too. I believe my patients um, want to see me and three, uh, you know, I, I don't plan on doing this forever. And to maintain proficiency, to maintain my license, I have to keep doing it. I've been working as much as I can during this uh, period to try to help alleviate, you know, the the doctor shortage that we have in the East. And I'll continue to do so. So I did it in the General Assembly. People didn't think I could do it then. People don't think I can do it now, but I, I am.
1: North Carolina's 3rd District Representative in the House of Representatives, Dr. Greg Murphy, I appreciate your time. Uh, safe travels for the rest of your trip here, although I think I may have talked with you during the entire duration of it. I do appreciate you being uh, so generous with your time with us today.
2: Great. Thank you so much, Pete. Pete, nice to meet you. God bless and stay safe.
1: All right. You too. Take care, sir. If you are looking to take care of your emergency preparedness needs then you need to uh look up a website real quick and that is oldgrouch.com oldgrouch.com Who's old grouch? Well, the current old grouch is Tim. Uh Tim's dad Buddy was the original old grouch, so I guess you could call him the OG G G or something. Anyway, uh Tim Uh, is now running the store. His father uh, opened it over 30 years ago uh, and when he passed away, Tim took over the family business. And If you have questions about being prepared, how to be prepared, uh, or if you've got questions about an item that you've seen on his website, oldgrouch.com, 565-2497. Take down that number, 565-2497. It's a text number. So you can send a text to Tim and uh, you can get information on emergency preparedness. What are the best supplies? What do you need? uh, And uh, you can also ask about items you've seen on his website and if there are things that you're looking for but don't know where to get them he can probably get them guy's got contacts all over the place he can find it for you send him a text 565-2497 and get some advice get some information about an order uh, or get the items that you're looking for oldgrouch.com old grouch's military surplus downtown clyde on main street across the street from the anti-aircraft gun for real And this is for real, too. This is an audio clip that I have uh, from Nancy Pelosi's appearance a week ago on Fox News. On the rare occasion that a member of the press actually asks House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to defend her terrible decisions and leadership, she usually bombs magnificently in a fashion not unlike President Trump at a two-hour news conference. This is by Beckett Adams at the Washington Examiner. I don't think he's a big fan of President Trump's. He says, yet Pelosi is continually given a pass by a news media that is more than willing to look the other way. Uh, For example, Fox News' Chris Wallace pressed the speaker to reconcile her claim that the Trump administration's sluggish response to the coronavirus pandemic caused thousands of deaths, uh, with the fact uh, that she was also encouraging people as late as February 24th to go out and visit San Francisco's Chinatown district. How do you make both of those arguments, right? How can you say that Trump caused these deaths, but yet you were down in Chinatown telling people, come on down to Chinatown? I feel like I need to just rhyme that all out for some reason. I don't know why. All right. Here is the clip, though, from Chris Wallace, Fox News, the rare occasion when Pelosi
0: gets pressed to defend a terrible thing she said or did. You as you are right now, have been very critical of President Trump, especially for what you say is the time that he lost initially in January and February in responding to the virus. But I want to point out that on February 24th, you went on a walking tour of Chinatown to try to promote tourism there. And here's some of what you had to say.
3: That's what we're trying to do today is to say, everything is fine here because precautions have been taken. We think it's very safe to be in Chinatown and hope that others will come.
0: If the president underplayed the threat in the early days, Speaker Pelosi, didn't you as well?
3: No. What we're trying to do is to end the discrimination, the stigma that was going out against the Asian uh, American community. And in fact, if you will look, the record will show uh, that our Chinatown has been a model uh, of containing and and preventing the virus. So I have confidence in our folks there and thought it was necessary to offset some of the things that the president and others were saying about Asian Americans and making them a target, uh, a, a target of violence across the country and that so, in but, fact, but, some hate but crimes. But forgive me, don't committed. you think,
0: don't you think that you, when you're out walking without any masks, I understand this is February, not April when this happened, yeah. and saying that there's no threat, it's perfectly safe there, weren't you also adding to this perception yeah. that there wasn't such a threat generally?
3: No, I was saying that you should not discriminate against against Chinese Americans, (laughs) as some in our administration were doing, uh, by the way they were labeling the flu and that. No, indeed. And again, I think if you check the record, and it's current, uh, you will see that that Chinatown has been a model uh, in all of this. And that's what we're saying. Look to them for the answers. Don't look to them uh, to uh, place blame. See,
1: so when she said, come on down to Chinatown, she was really saying um, Chinatown has the best precautions set up here to battle the COVID-19 that nobody actually thought was a big deal. She didn't say that. This is so dishonest. And she never is called to task for this. This is the closest I've heard anybody get to calling her to task for this. And uh, and how she skates away from this is like, oh, I didn't say that. It was just about discrimination. No, you were walking around without a mask telling people, come on down and celebrate uh, the Lunar New Year, celebrate the Chinese culture because Orange Man bad, right? So the question was, did you do X? And she replies, oh, I was doing Z. She never denies that she did X. She's just saying that what you saw and what you heard wasn't what you saw and what you heard. I'm just going to answer this other question, which is amazing. She visited Chinatown specifically to protest the January 31st order barring Chinese nationals from entering the United States, a move that was intended to limit the spread of the virus that originated in Wuhan, China. Beckett Adams says at the Washington Examiner, I'm not sure which is worse, her hypocritical attacks on the White House or her attempts... To defend her hypocrisy, and then we have this past weekend. She's on with Jake Tapper on CNN, uh, not showing off her twenty-four thousand-dollar freezers and uh, all of the ice cream stocked inside. But uh, here is uh, here is now her revising the history in real time. So that whole thing that you just heard, like whoop, down the memory hole. Here we go. Well, there's one thing, one point of clarifi- uh, clarification. I was I was wondering. Vice President Joe Biden's campaign told me earlier this month uh, that he supported President Trump's partial travel restrictions uh, on January 31st, blocking foreign nationals from China from coming to the United States. Do you agree that it was the right move by President Trump at the time?
3: Well, let's go into the future, okay? (laughs) Uh, Actually, tens of thousands of people were still allowed in from China. So... It wasn't as it is described as this great moment. Though there were Americans coming back or green card holders coming back, but there were tens of thousands. So if you're going to shut the door because you have an evaluation of, of an epidemic, then shut the door. But let's go f- into the future. All
1: right. So then she talks about what Americans want to see now. But look, so she's saying, oh, it didn't go far enough. Here's what she said on January 31st. The administration's expansion of its outrageous un-American travel ban threatens our security. That's what she said on January 31st. She's trying to rewrite history now. Thanks so much for listening to the show. Thanks for the support. We'll talk to you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone.